Hello, my name's Andre Lomblay. I'm the editor of The Haven High. Each week on this podcast, we'll be bringing you an interview with a guest with strong links to North London, where we'll discuss their lives, careers and love of the area. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe, like and leave a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest this week on The Haven High podcast is Dame Esther Ranson. Dame Esther headed up the magazine show That's Life from 1973 to 1994. Out of that show, she developed the charity Childline, and in 2012, she founded the Silverline, which provides advice and support for older people. Both charities have become even more important since the pandemic arrived. So without further ado, Dame Esther Ranson. So, Dame Esther Ranson, thank you very much for joining us on the Have and High podcast. How are you doing at the moment? I'm doing fine, actually. I'm not in Hampstead, where I normally am. Um, I sort of isolated myself rather early, March the 14th. I had to come to my home in the New Forest and uh, rumour reached me of a possible lockdown. So I made one mercy dash to pick up extra pairs of knickers and a couple of T-shirts and have spent since March the 16th, more or less uninterrupted here in the New Forest. And I mean, it's not a bad place to be at any time, but um, it, I, if you're going to be in lockdown, it's a beautiful place to be. How have you, have you found it um, for yourself? Have you um, dealt with it okay, being alone there? Well, I'm not alone because unfortunately my elder daughter has ME, which means that she has an underlying health issue and I have an underlying health issue, which is being 80 years old now. So... Um, she and I are together and this makes a huge difference. It makes all the difference in the world because, you know, we share experiences on television or we disagree about television more often and we uh, make each other laugh a lot and get annoyed with each other on the internet. So it's, it's good. It's good. And, but I really feel for the people, particularly the people who are in touch with Childline and the Silverline who haven't got this kind of congenial company in isolation so it's not complete isolation by any means well that, that's a good point really i mean uh, for, for listeners who may not know um, dame esther founded childline in 1980 late 80s 86 was that and um, silverline uh, a few years ago um, which is a helpline for older people uh, to help with loneliness which i i assume has really come into its own i mean it was doing great work before but it's come into its own in the last few months it certainly has. We've had something like 31% uh, more calls to our helpline. And this um, was difficult for us. It was a challenge for us because at the same time, we had to find a way of working safely distanced from each other, which meant that quite a lot of our team are now working from home. And um, that means that we are asking them to do longer shifts and more shifts and they are rising to the challenge so we're still answering the number of uh, callers that we did before but it's been difficult um, and, and what's the what's the impression of how people have dealt with it because i mean i live alone personally and i feel like i've dealt with it pretty well on the whole but there's certainly moments where i found extra stress or surprising well, I don't know, anger and things coming through and I've had to catch myself and go hang on a sec you're not in a normal situation this is going to be difficult for, to deal with is, is that the kind of uh, response you're getting from, from people on the lines? Well um, different responses from the silver line um, 
and from child line. If we look at the silver line, what, what a lot of our callers are talking to us about is how frightening it is because we're talking to people in the upper age limit, which is specifically at risk from this loathsome virus. And many of them dependent on carers who come in every day. And so they're fearful about what would happen if the carer gets ill or what happens if the carer brings the infection into their homes. And the one thing they dread more than anything else is being carted off to hospital on their own and maybe even dying on their own. And you can understand it. It's a very real fear. With the children who are in touch with Childline, quite a number of the ones who ring Childline are not in safe families, not in safe homes. So to be locked down with violence or abuse or neglect or addiction has been really unbearable for some of them. And uh, they've been telling Childline that they just want to run away, get away from it wherever it didn't matter where they had to get away so we've created a special thing on the internet called calm zone and uh, for young people for whom the internet is really their natural medium which it isn't for the older people who ring the silver line in many cases um they they go onto that site and it does they do find it helpful i mean both of those answers are a good uh, a good message is for me because I often find I'm kind of in my north London flat and I have to remind myself that my inconveniences are kind of small compared to those who are either vulnerable or find themselves in those difficult difficult situations um, how, do, how do you feel or how do the the charities feel that the authorities um, have dealt with it purely in terms of those uh, for example the children's situations are we also finding there's gaps in services opening up because the authorities are being stretched by the rest of the pandemic? Absolutely. I think um, before the pandemic struck, Childline had a lot of contacts from young people with serious mental health issues who were finding it very difficult to get the professional support they need. And Childline was filling that gap very often. Um, now, of course, it's exacerbated it because being on your own doesn't help any mental health issue ever and uh, so Chadline and the NSPCC are very concerned that the government is bearing in mind there is going to be long-term harm long-term damage done some young people by the effects of the pandemic no, absolutely and I think it's something all the services are aware of but resources look like they're going to be the big issue for for, for helping people for you uh so you in the new forest you said you've had company from from your daughter what's uh what are the particular bits and pieces of, that have got you through have you taught yourself to cook new things or have you discovered tv programs that have made you laugh that you didn't expect to find well i'm adoring the reruns of downton abbey they're just as good as they always were. And it gives me a moment to admire the writing above all, but also the performances, the direction, gorgeous costumes, amazing locations, wonderfully authentic. So I, I sometimes I argue with the language, sometimes little <laughs> modern bits of slang creep in, but very rarely. Um, so I love that. Um, my daughter fortunately cooks, I don't. So um, it's wonderful that, you know, I can rely on her skill in this and she's very kind 
to me about that. I think the telephone, as the two helplines have proved, and as I find in my own life, is extremely useful. It's a wonderful way to really communicate with someone at a, quite a deep level. Obviously, the internet, you know, again, I worry about some of our silver line callers who are not comfortable at all with the internet. So they're deprived of this wonderful window on the world. Zoom, I never used Zoom in my life. And yet here we are, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's are. made a big difference. Yes, mine comes and goes a bit. I don't know about yours, because the New Forest has many wonderful virtues. It's beautiful, it's got full of, it's full of wonderful animals roaming free, New Forest ponies, cows, pigs, etc. It's hell for the internet, trying to get any kind of signal, because it, funnily enough, the, the internet, Wi-Fi can't stand trees. I never knew that. That's a, <laughs> a worrying discovery. It doesn't like trees. It's the trees fighting back against technology and mankind's takeover. I mean, I, I read the other day that when you, uh, well, after you'd been on I'm a Celebrity, uh, get me out of here, you said one of the things you liked was to be able to throw, give away your phone, give away your watch and actually be cut off for a bit. I, I, this must have a bizarre kind of mirror image what's happened in the last few months of that experience. Did that prepare you at all for this? Um, nothing prepared me for this. I don't think anything prepared any of us for this. I mean, the, all the scientists have been caught on the back foot preparing for a flu pandemic, which hasn't happened. Something in some ways much worse has happened. You know, I think our po politicians are floundering. I think our broadcasters are trying to find new ways of working. Certainly our charities are, and a lot of charities are suffering with charity shops closing and events being cancelled. As far as I'm concerned, personally, it's led me to have grave doubts about my own sanity up to last March, because I don't know what I was doing, dashing about, forcing my way through London, traffic, trying to go to meetings that last hours and hours and hours. What was I doing? Why was I doing that? When I now realise that in Zoom, you can meet quite a large number of people from the the comfort of your own study. So I think it will have changed my life completely. Uh, yeah, and no, I really think it has for lots of, I mean, the same as you, I had never heard of Zoom until, until all this happened, but it has made a difference. And I suppose one of the other benefits might be to do with the environment because lots of us will think, actually, I'm not going to drive halfway across the country to, to, to do this. Are, are you missing North London? Uh, I'm missing North Londoners. I have a little group of friends. We call ourselves the Hamsters because we live in Hampstead. <laughs> we meet once a month. Well, now we're meeting once a week. Then it was in a Hampstead restaurant around a table. Now it's via Zoom. And um, I do miss them. And we have a lot of fun. Some of them are theatricals, as you can imagine, it being Hampstead. And therefore, they have an almost endless supply of wonderful anecdotes that they tell really well. I'm interested, there are, there are, some, there are certain subjects we're not allowed to talk about. I make the rules, and I don't like it when we fall out. So we're not allowed to talk about Brexit, of course. <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about Harry and Meghan. That produces passionate views, pro and anti, which is strange. We have very different approaches to the lockdown. 
I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm breaking confidentiality if I say that Stanley Johnson is one of our members and of his many skills, being <laughs> imprisoned in one place is not one of them. In fact, turn around and he's waving at you from Greece. Yeah, absolutely. When there weren't any direct flights, he got there via Bulgaria. So, and the rest of us are saying, well, a number of us are saying, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to fly at the moment. We don't want to be in a metal tube, you know, sharing the air with people with no idea what, where they come from and what their health status is. So I'm one of those. I, I, I don't want to fly anywhere. I mean, Stanley Johnson has, has, a, has a certain talent at, um, at uh, doing as he wishes, maybe not as his son might like at any one particular time. I'm quite interested that in, in The Hamsters, you're the one that sets the rules. Do other people suggest the rules or do you just come in and impose them each time? No, I come in and impose them. I invite them all, you see. Mm. I'm, I'm the den, what do you call it, with scouts and brownies and things? I'm brown owl, that's the, my... Oh, or yeah, blue. Is that right? Jungle Book. It's so it's so long ago. Were you in the brownies back in the day? Never. Never. I think I'm. I think I'm. I think I'm brown owl. <laughs> this is beginning to have more, like, more and more like a secret society. Yeah. It's kind of the Bilderberg Group in in Hampstead. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Not that secret. I don't think. Well, no. Um, so, I mean, you, you've been in Hampstead for many, many years. You, you grew up elsewhere, but am I right in saying you went to school in the area and have kind of been based there ever since? Well, I was only anywhere else and up to the age of five, and that was only because there was a war going on and my grandparents thought there might be bombs falling on their home in Hampstead. And indeed, it, it hit the house next door in Eaton Avenue, or Fitzjohn's Avenue, Fitzjohn's Avenue. And um, we came back to Hampstead as soon as we could, 1945, six, around there. And really, I've lived there apart from occasional forays to Oxford and one to Long Island. I've lived there ever since. And I mean, this is a fairly open-ended question, but how have you seen the, the change over the years? Obviously, there, there has been development and there's been a certain change, but it's also kept a certain amount of character. It certainly has. I mean, I... I all the places that I've been familiar with all my life seem pretty unchanged to me. And indeed, I live a quarter of a mile from where I was brought up. So my, my children mock me for my, they, because I really don't like change and I am sentimental and I'm nostalgic and I do like staying in places that I've grown used to. So... I'm, I'm still walking in Hampstead Heath in the same walks that I always walked the dog when I was a child with my parents. It's nothing, not a great deal. Whitestone Pond has improved. I think there was a threat of the Olympics going. <laughs> and that, so they, they polished it up a bit. So it's, it's much um, neater and cleaner than it ever was. But apart from that, I don't see a lot of change. I mean, to, 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 to change subject slightly or considerably, um, so you're probably best known for Childline, I would say, these days, um, actually, as we're probably over, over being a broadcaster. I mean, that's life in the 70s and 80s was 
absolutely huge, wasn't it? It's, it's hard to imagine now the, the, the viewing figures. Um, I suppose one question I'd want to ask is how did you do it for so long? Because it looks exhausting. You could say how, you could say why. Um, <laughs> yes, I would say that if somebody had said to me right at the beginning in 1973, you know you're going to be doing this for 21 years, I would have said, ha, 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 hang on a minute. I mean, you're asking a heck of a lot because one was never off duty. You know, it was people, people, literally people were ringing me up through the night sometimes if we were on a big story. So, um, but for my 80th birthday a couple of weeks ago, 60 of us, we call ourselves lifers, met via this wonderful internet and they put together the most extraordinary, crazy, that's lifestyle script, which I didn't know anything about, but I had to sight read. Two of them arrived <laughs> outside my window just here to, to dress like beekeepers because they were in improvised PPE, handing me props and things. And they, they did mad films and all sorts of stunts. And um, I think I was trying to work out why, you know, a lot of them have gone on to great dizzy heights in the television industry. Why are they, why do they look back almost unanimously saying it was their happiest time work, working on that slide? And I think it was a combination that we had such a huge range of subjects. One minute we'd be laughing, the next minute it would be deeply moving with subjects like Nicholas Winton and so on. Um, so you, you had a whole range of mood but at the same time, you were achieving stuff for the viewers. There was a feeling of, you know, it was worthwhile. So at the end of it, it was not only entertainment, but you knew things had changed because of the work you did. And it was a unique combination for all of us, I think. Well, that, I mean, that presents a, an interesting question, doesn't it? There's a lot of debate these days about what journalism is, what it's for, what it should be doing. But um, with That's Life and then kind of, going into Childline, you kind of took it as a doing and not just a reporting on the world, as in uh, actually trying to change through action as well as through shining a light. Um, I suppose the question is, how do you feel about how journalism is done now? Do you think it's, it's falling short of what it could be? Yes, one of the things we did, which I suppose was a bit unjournalistic of us, was we didn't just look at the problem, we tried to find a solution. We always ask that question, you know, could it be solved? Could it be done better? If so, how? And I think there are still fantastic programs being made, fantastic investigations being done. Um, it's expensive because it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, resources. You, you often need material perhaps from around the world to get the full picture. But I've been looking, for example, at Radio 4's investigation of the post office scandal, which was horrific. And the post office tried to cover up for so long, which was absolutely disgraceful. And now there's a story that I've been interested in for a long, long time. Someone came to me years ago to talk about the bullying and abuse that goes on with talented children in gymnastics tiny world where a very small cabal of people have total control 
you know, the people that are doing the commentaries are also the people that are doing the judging, who are also the people who are deciding who will represent Britain at the Olympics and so on. And this girl came to me because she had a permanent back injury caused by the fact that she was forced to practice when she'd had an injury um, and she was bullied into it. Well, I've just seen that ITN is covering this, but I went everywhere with that story and failed to find a home for it. And I'm equally worried about children who play rugby, children who are talent scouted for football, children who take part in ballet. You know, if God had intended us to stand on our big toes, he would have given them hooves like horses. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that goes on that I think because the prize is so great, the fame, the glory, the money, that families of talented children are prepared to see their child put through the most horrific ordeals while they're training. I mean, as far as the, the sports goes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there must be a range of, um, from abuse to, um, well, I don't know what the word is. There'll be certain children who are put into football academies who are not being abused as such, but are still losing something by having the pressure put on them um, right to the other end where there is horrific things going on. And it's, uh, it's how that's policed or how it's, people are aware of it. Is it something you feel is a, a live an issue now as it was um, in the past? I do. I definitely do. Um, I th I'm very worried about it. If you take a, a talented boy who shows footballing skills and is scouted by one of the big teams and brought into an academy, the thrill of it all, the glory of it all, and then if he's not good enough at the age of 14 or 15 and dumped, the mental health issues that those children suffer, and that's not counting the fact that this constant training can lead to terrible damage in later years, arthritis and so on. I remember seeing a man walking with huge difficulty down a street with a walking stick and clearly very lame. And somebody said to me that he had been a star footballer, but they get awful arthritis. Yeah. Ballerinas get um, hip replacements. Um, trouble with their knees. Someone once said to me, you can always tell a ballet dancer on a beach because she's the one covering her feet with sand because they're so distorted. Um, Craig Revel Horwood has two new hips. Len Goodman has two new hips. And those are the people it's gone well for as a career. Absolutely. I mean, I doubt that they regret a moment, but I think... I think they should be protected in some way. There must be a way of enabling them to reach the heights of their performance without damaging their joints, their bones. I'd love to know what an orthopedic surgeon would say. Yeah, absolutely. There's a debate going on in football at the moment about whether children playing football should be heading the ball because obviously concussion damage is we're becoming more and more aware of. But it sounds like you'd certainly... Um, advocate a far wider review of, of what we're expecting children to do in football? Yes, in football and in rugby. Um, I th uh, you know, people will accuse me of being, you know, the nation's nanny 
not meaning it kindly, not meaning Mary Poppins. And I know what they mean. I mean, you, you want children to be able to express their talent. It gives them huge pleasure. But I, I do worry about the intensity of the training we put on all young people who want to enter the professional field. You know, I, th I, think, we, I think that the child protection um, agencies need really to have a look at this. Seriously. Boxing. What about boxing? Look at Muhammad Ali. There's no question that that bright mind, wonderful brilliance, the poems he used to write, that gorgeous young man, how um, who, he endured an onslaught, onslaught, onslaught of, of blows to the head over and over again, and ended up with serious damage. It's tragic. Did you ever meet him? No, I never did. I feel as if no. I did. I met Michael Parkinson, and Michael Parkinson did. Well, to be a, yeah, Michael Parkinson met most people, so you could tick a lot off the list with Michael. Um, how was your childhood? I'm, I'm, slightly, I'm slightly conscious. I don't know that much about how you felt about growing up. Well, it was, it was sort of classic, middle, middle-class, privet hedge, wash the car on Sunday, semi-detached, Hampstead childhood. Very happy, very enjoyable. One sister, a father who was an electrical engineer working for the BBC, a mum who didn't have a paid career but worked as a volunteer in various charities, uh, a big extended family, all of whom lived in Hampstead. I uh, saw them all the time. So it was, it was very, it was a very ordinary secure, loving, happy childhood, to which I owe everything really. You know, any confidence I have, any feeling that the sky's the limit that I've had in my life are due to my childhood, must be. And, well, you, you dropped in earlier that uh, you celebrated your 80th birthday last month. Happy birthday. Um, how, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about age? Um, well, it, um, Betty Davis said, old age is not for sissies, and I know what she means, because um, even, no matter how hard you try to look after your health, and I'm careful about my diet, I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't exercise, so I'm not all that careful about my health, um, it, it's going to deteriorate, you know it is, That's, there's only one way really, so... But there are compensations that people don't tell you about. I mean, you may lose your physical strength. Um, and I do have to ask my daughter to help me open some of these wretched bottles and <laughs> boxes and things. You, maybe you, you lose your physical strength, but you gain a sense of priority. You work out what's important in life and you decide to spend a bit more time with the things you care about. And, above all the people you care about. I don't know whether I'm talking about the impact of age or whether I'm talking about the impact of the pandemic and being locked down and working out what really matters. But I think that does happen with age. And of course, grandchildren happen with age. And that is the greatest gift. That is such, such a prize towards the end of your life. No one told me what fun it was going to be to have grandchildren, but it certainly is. Have you, have you taken on any of the schooling via 
online for whilst they've been in lockdown? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely, no one would trust me with that. Absolutely not. But I spend as much time with them as I can now um, because I've got quite a big garden and there's somewhere they can stay locally where they're on their own. Uh, we, we are now seeing quite a bit of each other and that's lovely. That's Except great. One of my grandsons, there was suddenly a worry in his school that one of the children in his class had tested positive for COVID and suddenly he's in isolation for 14 days, but with his family. So it's all rather complicated and they aren't in isolation. Right I now? Get, I don't get or, it. <laughs> I don't understand it. No. Is that, is that right now or earlier in the... Right now. Right now. Oh, right. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, then, well, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Um, I suppose the last question should be, is there anything else we need to say about Childline or, or Silverline? Uh, they're looking for donations, I assume. Well, I think um, what I would say to my fellow Ham and High readers is um, if you have a charity that you have donated money to in the past, don't stop. They need you now more than ever because all the charities have lost so much. They've lost a lot of their most valuable volunteers who, have, who are 70 plus, because those are the backbone of the whole charity sector. And as I say, charity shops, fundraising events have had to stop. So spare a thought for your favorite charity. And if you've ever donated before, keep donating. Dame Esther Ransom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. So thank you to Dame Esther Ransom for speaking to us. It was a great pleasure. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like and review. We'll be back again next week. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex Police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Why would a police force seemingly ignore a wealth of evidence and intelligence that a major paedophile ring was operating on its patch? Why would the charity workers trying to save the child victims find themselves targeted by a campaign of smears and threats? And why would a notorious child molester facing life in prison be let off with a slap on the wrist? I'm Charles Thompson, and this series of Unfinished will reveal how I spent five years trying to find the answers to those questions, and in doing so, uncovered a scandal that went unreported for almost 30 years. Subscribe now to receive the first episodes as soon as they're released in early July.